Hello everyone, welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach. I'm your host and executive producer of Restorative Justice on the Rise, which is an ongoing public dialogue series and telecast, including a podcast feature where you can stream and download past archives as well as this one included. You're about to listen into the virtual town hall featuring an opening talk from Senator Jamie Eldridge, focusing on the Senate Bill 2078, an act promoting restorative justice practices. This is based in Massachusetts. We also heard from an extraordinary panel, including Middlesex County DA Marion Ryan, the Honorable John Kratzley, who is a retired Superior Court and District Court judge. He's also a professor of law at Harvard University as well as Chief Police Chief Robert Bongiorno, who is the Chief of the Bedford, Massachusetts Police Department. We hit on a lot of important points about the greatly needed support of this bill. We urge you to take action to support, to write and reach out uh, as much as possible to help pass this bill along this year, this session. You can do more of that at peacealliance.org. We have an action tool where you can identify your senator and representative and a prefabricated letter, or you can make up your own. Thanks for listening in, and we hope to see you in the near future on Restorative Justice on the Rise. Enjoy this virtual town hall on Senate Bill 2078 everyone and such a warm welcome to all of you. This is Molly Rowan Leach and I'm your host tonight and facilitator of this very special edition and reopening of Restorative Justice on the Rise which is a public forum and telecast series focused on the justice conversation. So warmly welcoming you all here tonight. This edition of Restorative Justice on the Rise is going to focus on a very important conversation and we have an incredible panel and a very honored special host tonight. I'll, I'll introduce everyone in just a moment. Before I do that, I just want to say a few words about Restorative Justice on the Rise very quickly because we have a lot to cover tonight. Restorative Justice on the Rise focuses on providing education, tools, resources, and very unedited and productive dialogue concerning the, the justice transformation in the United States and beyond. We were founded in 2011 and it was co-founded by all of you, the participants. This is a live dialogue series and it's also recorded and we are in the midst of about to be launching our podcast as well as a new website that will feature resources, state-by-state -state listings, and we welcome your input and you are as much a part of this series as the next person. So thank you for being here tonight. RestorativeJusticeOnTheRise.com. We want to thank the Peace Alliance for being a co-sponsor of this series and also of tonight's very special virtual town hall. The title of tonight's town hall is a town hall with very special featured speaker to open, Senator Jamie Eldridge. And we're going to be talking about Senate Bill 2078, an act promoting restorative justice practices. Restorative justice is something that's really gaining a lot of ground even in Massachusetts and I want to share with you a couple of really stunning statistics that are also found on those resources that we've provided at the website that I'll be mentioning later for our action. 
one of those statistics is that especially victim satisfaction rates in Massachusetts versus those proceeding through traditional court are at 89% as compared to 57%. Uh, Massachusetts is also seeing reduced recidivism for offenders in, in that it's 16% versus 39%. It's also a huge cost savings, and a University of Massachusetts study in 2012 demonstrated that restorative justice is nearly six times more cost effective than traditional justice methods. So also it's important to illuminate that there's broad support of SB 2078 with the lead sponsor again being Senator Eldridge. Its endorse, endorsement includes supporters from across the state between Boston and Pittsfield. There is law enforcement support from the Massachusetts Major City Chiefs Association, which includes Boston and the surrounding metro area, Lowell, Lawrence, Wor Worcester, Springfield, and Holyoke, as well as academic institutions like Boston U, University School of Theology, excuse me, Northeastern University School of Law, as well as centers at Suffolk University and UMass Boston. And most importantly, practitioners from Boston, Dorchester, Roxbury, Concord, Carlisle, Franklin, Hampshire, the North Quabbin region, Orange, New Bedford, and Worcester, to mention a few. Now tonight I'd said that we have a co-host constituency and just really want to thank tonight the Restorative Justice Coalition of Massachusetts they're in the process of building a new website, uh, uh, their first of its kind, and so we'll keep you posted on that development. And also want to thank the Juvenile Court Restorative Justice Diversion Program, also known as JCRJD, and Communities for Restorative Justice, C4RJ, of Mass all of Massachusetts. So tonight, uh, just for a moment also, I'd like to welcome Bob Baskin, who is the president of the Peace Alliance. The Peace Alliance is doing a lot of great things to support advocacy and focuses um, in many projects related and directly related to restorative justice. So he's going to say a few words and then introduce us into um, Senator Eldridge and his talk tonight before we go into the panel. Now remember, you are an active part of this conversation tonight. I know many of you have submitted questions and you're also encouraged to ask live questions. So the live question period will be a little bit after about halfway through. Um, we'll start that out and then we'll get going with some dialogue with our amazing panelists. You can press one on your telephone keypad in order to ask a live question and we'll know exactly who's uh, queuing up. So without further ado, Bob Baskin of the Peace Alliance, welcome. Thank you, thank you Molly, and welcome to everyone. It's really an honor to, to be here. Uh, you know, the, the Peace Alliance really is an educational uh, and advocacy grassroots organization that works very hard to uh, affect positively the way individuals and communities, and for that matter, even nations, respond to conflict and violence. And restorative justice is certainly one of the uh, primary uh, tools that are available and that we uh, work with in order to uh, provide alternatives to the more punitive, more militaristic interests that are far too prevalent today uh, in, in this country and frankly even, ar even around the world. Uh, you know, we have done 
uh, a lot with restorative justice, as Molly, as you know from Molly and her restorative justice on the rise, we are very much uh, in communication around the nation uh, with other advocates for restorative justice, and we feel very uh, proud of the fact that, that we think uh, there is a, a, a role for us to play and a leadership position to take in order to further educate and empower folks around the concept of, of what restorative justice can, can accomplish and the benefits thereof. The Peace Alliance really has a 10-year record of, uh, of building successes around some of these more peace-building uh, approaches. And frankly, that's the message that I would like to leave with each of you, because you can make a difference. And I can give you an example for why I feel that way. You know, we've done an awful lot of, of advocacy work at the, at the national level, but about a year and a half ago, we got involved in the state of Colorado uh, with a representative by the name of Pete Lee, who had introduced a bill to uh, provide uh, additional funding, better, better access, and to establish a number of pilot sites around the state of Colorado that would demonstrate the benefits of restorative justice. And what, what the Peace Alliance and some of our partners did is we helped empower and educate cons our, the constituents in Colorado to urge them to speak to their representatives in support of this bill. Because when constituents speak to elected officials, and I'll bet Senator uh, uh, Eldridge will, will confirm this, the most important introduction that you can make when you enter uh, discussion with one of your elected officials is, hi, I'm your constituent, and I would like you to do the following. That has an impact. Well, it worked in Colorado with the help of uh, some other partners and certainly from the leadership of Pete Lee. That bill is now law in, in Colorado, and you can do the same thing in Massachusetts, and I would urge you strongly, whether it be in Massachusetts or some of you from around the country even, speak to your elected officials. Let them know how you feel and let them hear more about the benefits of and your support of restorative justice. Let me just introduce the, the primary guest here tonight, and that is, of course, Senator uh, Jamie Eldridge, a, a Democrat out of Acton, Massachusetts, who made the very first uh, public announcement that he would seek a restorative justice bill for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts just about five years ago. And, uh, you know, this is the uh, second session where this bill has been introduced. As the senator will probably tell you, one of the attributes that elected officials need is perseverance. <laughs> These things don't happen overnight, unfortunately. And nevertheless, uh, the senator is back again with a second try at trying to get this bill passed in, in uh, Massachusetts. As Molly has indicated, it's Senate Bill, 20, Senate Bill 2078, an act promoting restorative justice practices. It's a very comprehensive bill, and it's been of interest to the senator because, in fact, he has seen the benefits of restorative justice in the fact that many of the communities in and around his district are already practicing it. He also uh, has and, and possesses the kinds of attributes that we all would love in our elected officials. He's accessible, he's committed, he has that enviable endurance and optimism 
with this legislative effort, and we are just so honored and pleased and grateful to have him join the call today. And, Senator, I would, I would uh, love to uh, pass the mic on to you for your comments. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. Great, Bob. Thank you very much. I hope everybody can hear me. So thank you very much for that, that ki kind introduction. And, and Molly, thanks so much for helping organize this virtual town hall to talk about uh, the restorative justice bill and just restorative justice in general in, in Massachusetts. And the, the, uh, the, the panelists, uh, Judge Kratzley, um, Middlesex District Attorney Marion Ryan, and uh, Chief Bongiorno have all been critical pieces for um, making the current um, practice of restorative justice active, uh, especially in, in Middlesex County. And of course, we're, we're looking to sort of take those best practices and those experiences and uh, make it a statewide option, which is, which is the bill <clears throat> uh, that I filed. So the, um, that is, you know, that's the bill, an act promoting restorative justice practices. Um, what I would say, um, before I go into detail about the bill and also uh, my recent efforts to get the bill uh, passed into law, um, for those listening, whether from Massachusetts or from, from out of state, is that um, I think what's, what's particularly um, uh, perfect timing for this restorative justice bill is that there's a real conversation uh, finally going on in Massachusetts, whether outside the State House, uh, in communities, among the grassroots, or inside the State House, among uh, many legislators, about the need for comprehensive criminal justice reform. And uh, that can come in many forms, but I think there's a recognition that um, in many ways um, the way um, individuals who have broken law are uh, dealt with in some instances by the criminal justice system is not a productive use of time, um, often not the best use of, of resources, of taxpayer resources, of, or of lawyer, lawyers or professionals, um, and, and also um, the devastating effect it has on, on many uh, communities across Massachusetts. So I, I do think the restorative justice bill fits into this narrative, and I think that's in part uh, in addition to, to all the stakeholders who have contributed so much why the bill is reported out of committee and now is in the, the Senate Ways and Means. Um, very briefly, the bill, an act promoting restorative justice practices, w is an enabling act. So it, it allows it, it uh, effectively local option, the option of law enforcement and prosecutors to divert <clears throat> um, most criminal cases uh, to a community-based restorative justice program and uh, outside of the traditional court system um, to uh, go through that process. Uh, of course, uh, the victims uh, have to uh, give their consent uh, to, uh, to such a diversion. Um, and I have, as, as Bob mentioned, I have had the opportunity through Communities for Restorative Justice based in Concord to be part of a restorative justice circle. And um, although it was, you know, one, uh, one session, um, I really saw the value of it and, and the impact it made uh, on, on the, um, the, the alleged uh, violator. So, um, so it's, it's a fairly straightforward bill, and I, and I think um, that's why it's gotten the support of the Mass Police Chiefs Association, um, in large part thanks to Chief Bongiorno, um, uh, to have a district attorney, to have Middlesex District Attorney Marion Ryan behind it, um, has really played a critical role in getting it where it currently is in the legislature, uh, and obviously, um, you know, having uh, members of, of the bar um, and mem members of the judicial branch, Judge Kratzley, also Judge Blitzman up in Lowell, um, has been very helpful. 
Um, so where the bill is at right now, and, and um, I'd be the first to admit that um, the legislative process can be frustrating when, when you have a bill that has so much support and yet um, it's not moving uh, right now. I, I'm hoping it moves before uh, the end of the session, which is July 31st. But um, the bill is in the Senate Ways and Means Committee. Um, almost every bill uh, that's heard either by the House or Senate uh, is heard by the Ways and Means Committee, that's the Budget Committee, um, just to analyze uh, the cost. Um, of course, my argument is this bill will save uh, you know, lots of money, and I, and I think that's you know, backed up by a number of studies. Um, so the Senate Ways and Means staff has been reviewing the bill. Um, Judge Crapsley was um, helpful enough to uh, offer some suggestions about some uh, changes to the bill uh, dealing with um, discretion by police for both pre-complaint and post-complaint uh, of, of someone who's uh, allegedly you know, committed a crime or broken a law. So uh, that language has been looked upon favorably by the Senate Ways and Means Committee, so that's very helpful. And Senate Ways and Means Committee right now is reaching out to different state agencies, uh, so the, the Office of Public Safety under, under Governor Patrick's office, uh, reaching out to that office to um, get them to, to sign off on the bill. Um, so I think we're at a very good place. I, I think the, the reality of almost any bill uh, in June uh, in the second year of a two-year legislative session where the session ends on July 31st is just that there's a lot of uh, bills with great merit and it's just getting it prioritized and reported out of committee and I, and I do uh, have to say, having a district attorney supporting this bill, uh, having law enforcement um, supporting this bill um, sort of uh, ameliorates some of the concern that some legislators might have that this bill is, is not, uh, quote, unquote, tough on crime. Um, you know, I would argue it's, it's smart on crime and it's more effective than, than some of the approaches to, to deal with, you know, first-time offenders. Um, but I think it has a lot of support, and I think really what needs to happen um, and it has been happening is to get advocates, uh, citizens, residents from across the state to contact their legislators and, you know, ask if, if you're talking to a senator, ask the senator uh, to ask the Senate Ways and Means Committee to report the bill out of committee. Uh, if you're talking to your state representative, um, asking them to contact either the Speaker of the House or the House Ways and Means Committee that, um, they, you know, that you're a strong supporter of this bill. Um, so that's the basic uh, process of where the bill is at. Um, again, there, there is no opposition that, that I have found to this bill, um, and I, I truly think it's a, a bipartisan bill. Um, so I'm, I'm very encouraged um, that it could pass, but again, at this point, it's just sort of a, a race where you have a lot of bills of positive merit and just getting it to the top of the pile and getting it out of committee and passed by the Senate and House is the is the challenge. Um, so, um, so thanks again for, for having me on, and I, I hope uh, that was an adequate uh, description of the process and, mm -hmm. and uh, all the stakeholders involved and why, uh, why this bill is so important. Mm. Thank you, Senator Eldridge, so much. And on the note of taking actions, tonight we're going to be closing out our dialogue with our panelists. And also, Senator Eldridge, will you be available um, for any live questions later on towards the, the further end of the call tonight, or do you need to slip off? Unfortunately, I do have to slip off. Uh, life of a politician, I have another event to go to. So <laughs> <I'll>... <laughs> no, no problem. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. And 
uh, I just want to make mention that the action that I that um, I've referred to a few times, there is a place on our Peace Alliance website that I'll be sharing with everyone who registered tonight in a follow-up e email so that if you are interested in taking action, we have a really easy tool uh, on this website where you can determine who your representative or senator is and write to them with a pre-made message or you can choose to make your own. We've already set up a tool for you to make it really simple. So um, thank you so much again, Senator Eldridge, for your time tonight. And we're going to switch on over to the marrow of our time together tonight with the Honorable John Kratzley, retired. Also, we're with Chief uh, Robert Bongiorno and District Attorney Marion Ryan. Um, Chief Bongiorno is from the Bedford Police Department, as many of you may know. And District Attorney Marion Ryan is, um, she represents the Middlesex County region. Uh, so we have some questions that we have formulated to open the panel. And what we're going to do tonight with the format is start out with fielding the questions directly with our panel members. So you all know that you can field these questions as you see fit. And if you feel like you'd like to pass, you can do that as well. So the first question tonight for our panelists is, what would this bill do that our system currently cannot do? And so you all are unmuted on your mics, and you can feel free to field as you wish. I think the bill does a couple of things. It would empower those victims of the offenses to benefit from and participate in the decision-making process, as well as other stakeholders like the members of the community. Um, it also allows them to have specific input that informs the disposition, the results, the reparation, which we know leads to a greater satisfaction. It helps to educate perpetrators on the real impact of their wrongdoing, um, which we know leads to deterring future conduct. And it allows what I think is one of the most powerful aspects of the restorative justice piece, which is that real dialogue and apology between the perpetrator and the victim. And, and then as a practical piece, I think it reduces the cost of the process. Mm -hmm. Thank you, DA Ryan. I, I also would like to, to just um, add something there, if I might. Um, given you have such a unique perspective as a district attorney, do you, can you make a, a quick comment on how you see this providing um, further victim support, given that you know, in other states that we've worked with, we've seen you know, there's a legitimate and also sensitive concern about victims' rights and needs. So if you would, um, tell us a little bit about how this might really actually benefit and support victims even more. Well, I think the, the, need, the rights of the victim, victims are honored, at least in our program, obviously, and it would be in this bill, by if the victim declines to participate in a victim crime, the, the crime, the case is not going to restorative justice, um, if they are completely opposed to that. Um, in those cases where they do, one of the issues we often see, even after a very successful prosecution, and, and it tends to be related to, in some respects, the more personal nature of the crime. For instance, somebody who somebody has come through their house 
and and opened every drawer and not just taken things but destroyed things, they may well have a question of why. Why did that happen? Why did they do that to me? And and this does address that piece in a way that the traditional court process does not. Great. Thank you so much. Um, let's go over to you, Chief Sanjarno. Um, what, what would this bill do that our system currently can't do? I think you heard uh, very eloquently tonight, it, I think it restores a, uh, victim satisfaction. And I think there's a, there's a gaping hole, I think, right now in our criminal justice system. And that's with respect to victim rights. Um, you, you heard um, uh, uh, speakers earlier tonight talk about the victim satisfaction rates, the re reduced recidivism, uh, and it's cost effective. Um, and the other thing that's really important, at least in Bedford, it's a community-based program. So there's buy-in from the community. Uh, and, and I think uh, in a true community-based program, um, such as we practice in Bedford, um, to get the participation of the community is huge. And I think those are some of the factors that right now we're really lacking in the criminal justice system. Make no mistake about it. This Communities for Restorative Justice is about victims, and it's about um, repairing a harm. And I think that's where the gaping hole is in the criminal justice system right now. Mm, very good. Thank you. Honorable John Kratzley, your thoughts? Well, on the same question, just speaking as a retired judge, um, this is going to offer, uh, especially if, uh, particularly if the legislation passes, um, it's going to offer to uh, district attorneys and uh, judges um, a way of approaching uh, that wasn't available before. That's really what the difference is. But the court process that I spent 30 years involved in has some very important role, important um, structure, but it can be seen by, by victims as cold and rigid. We have a strong victim rights statute, but when there's a plea bargain, a victim may not feel they got as much participation as they hoped for. Uh, when I sentence a defendant, I'm not so sure they're listening uh, uh, to anything that I'm saying. And as you just heard from the prior two speakers, the restorative justice process, the circle process, is so much more participatory so much more inclusive, so much more driven by insight uh, and, and, and uh, um, self-reflection um, that uh, everyone gains from the circle process uh, as, as compared to the formalities um, of the court. And what I like about the legislation is the fact that it's going to expand the availability of, of the circle process and of the restorative practices um, to participants like judges who haven't really had access. The police model that Judge Bongiorno is, uh, I'm sorry, Chief Bongiorno has effect so effectively carried out is, is an important community-based initiative. But there are judges, and that's the way I felt before I retired, who would like to have access, uh, even after a young person is charged, to a restorative circle as part of the uh, sentencing or the outcome determination for that young person. So that's why I think the legislation offers us so much more than we've ever had in our criminal justice system. Mm. Thank you so much. Let's move on to the next question. Of course, again, for 
panel members to field as you wish. One major misconception about RJ, so to speak, is that it is soft on crime. And of course we have touched on that already in tonight's discussion. Would you please give an example from your experience that highlights that it is not? <laughs> That's, you know, one of, one of the difficulties in, in initiating and getting buy-in from the police officers um, is that thought that restorative justice is a hug a cop and it's soft on crime. It's easy on the offender. Um, you know, it's, it's a get out of jail free card. I think um, in the perfect example is, is, is the reluctance of police officers to get that buy-in initially um, because when you become a police officer, the thought is, um, you know, you're, you're, you're putting on a uniform and you're going to go out and lock up some bad people. Um, so this is a different approach. As, you, as police officers come out of the academy, um, you know, it, it's counterintuitive to some of the training that's ongoing in the academies, which we need to change, and hopefully we do with this connecting of the legislation, more training. But I think um, what I tell the officers is this. Participate in the circle process. Watch the dynamic, um, and then at the end of it, if you come out and, and, and every single time the officer will say, it was um, the, uh, the offender was held more accountable than they would have in a criminal justice system. Again, the victim satisfaction rates are higher, and the police officer's um, satisfaction rates are higher as well. So I think there is that misconception that it's softer on crime, but I think, um, at least in the police circles, the reluctance from the police officers initially, once they participate in the circle and they see and, 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 and feel uh, the process, they come out with a totally different attitude. Now, let, let me, this is uh, Judge Grassley again. I'm just going to mention this. Uh, I can't do the details of a specific example, but the circle process that I watched um, involved a middle school student and uh, a matter that if she were an adult uh, could well have been a felony type of charge. And I watched her work with the circle participants uh, from her school, from her family, from the community, to create a plan that was much more rigorous, much more demanding of her uh, participation, her, uh, her thinking reflectively about what she'd done than traditional probation uh, from a court would have, would have involved. Uh, the hours that she spent uh, writing, um, you know, her letter of apology, carrying out some other community-based uh, services and activities uh, far exceeded uh, and, and were more demanding uh, on her than, than what the traditional probation, which would have asked her to maybe phone in once a month, would have called for. I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a demanding uh, outcome, and it's one that both the victims, those who were hurt, and those who did the hurt uh, participate in choosing the plan. Thank you, Honorable Kratzley. Yay, Ryan, did you have any thoughts on this particular question? Well, one aspect of it is it reflects what both the Chief and Judge Kratzley have said, is that the disposition you see is, you know, in a traditional court process, we only have so many dispositions available. And it's not possible, even with a judge who's very invested and with great probation staff, it's not always possible to tailor a disposition perfectly for a particular case. And that is one advantage 
of the restorative justice model. Thank you. I'd, I'd like to throw in a question here that um, is, is somewhat of a, a question that burns not just for the state of Massachusetts concerning restorative justice perhaps, but more widely in the work that we do with other states. There seems to be a common theme and that's just uh, what, what are the other misconceptions that seem primary concerns or um, resistances that, that we might need to address tonight um, besides the soft on crime point and besides uh, talking about victim um, care and respect and making sure that, th that any misconception is removed in that arena. Um, are there any other points and misconceptions that you're seeing, any of you, that, that you'd like to address tonight specifically and as specific to this bill? Well, I'll mention one, again, uh, as a former judge, I think there are colleagues of mine and those that are uh, especially younger uh, uh, judges of more diverse backgrounds that are now increasingly coming to the bench that don't know, don't know anything about restorative justice and, and, and don't know how to use the program and don't know, have any way to get access. So the bill is a step in the right direction in creating the ability of a sitting judge to work with the restorative justice program in their community or, or, or work with their probation department to get restorative practices uh, added to the repertoire, the menu of potential outcomes. So I think there's a, there's an, there has been an obstacle of judicial education. Yeah, I'd like to... I'd like to piggyback uh, what the Honorable Judge just said, and, and I think the education component, at least in the policing circles, um, again, I mentioned some reluctance among the line police officers to participate and embrace uh, restorative justice. I think uh, at the chief's level as well, there is some re reluctance um, because of, again, we get back to that soft on, um, soft on crime approach. So to piggyback what the judge said, I think that educational component uh, that the judges might need, I think we'd like to see um, in the uh, police chief arena as well. But that is ongoing. Uh, to district attorney's leadership, uh, we hold quarterly meetings. Uh, she continues to train police officers and police chiefs on this very topic. Um, we have initiated this training into our in-service programs in Massachusetts. Uh, we're looking to get this into the recruit level as well. So I think the education component, the more police officers find out about this, what I call, it's another tool in the tool belt. And, and if police officers realize that they have another tool in the tool belt, it'll be effective. And once they understand the concepts of restorative justice, I believe they'll, they'll, they'll begin to fully embrace it. Thank you, Chief. DA Ryan, any comments on that one? No. No, I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you. So let's move on to the next question then, and then we'll, we'll break for a little bit for some live questions from our constituency gathered tonight here on this live call. And again, this will be recorded and posted as a podcast, and, and you can stream it online and also pass it along to anyone who missed tonight's session so as to help spread the word about SB 2078 and taking immediate actions to support it. So the last question I have here is uh, we'd like to hear an example from the field 
where restorative justice might have been particularly useful if it had been a legal option and how you think it would have been helpful. You can also choose from uh, the second part of the question as well, if it might interest you. <clears throat> what hurdles do you face among your work colleagues when discussing restorative justice? And how have you framed it in a way that re reduces that resistance? Interesting. I, maybe I'll take a stab at that. Um, I think some of the misconceptions that are out there, um, that's a hurdle. Um, you know, some of the police chiefs think um, that this is just for young people. Um, C4RJ has a fantastic video out there, which um, it's a great story about an adult uh, who was refereeing. Um, and um, he was assaulted uh, verbally and, and maybe even almost physically. But I think um, trying to educate about some of the misconceptions that restorative justice is just for young people. Um, I think you know we've seen some effective cases um, with some adults as well. So again, that education component um, in dealing with uh, the misconceptions that the law enforcement community has about restorative justice. Thank you, Chief. Anyone else care to field either part of that? Well, I'll just I think add from, from my judicial experience that there are occasions in the formal court process, uh, which, as I say, can be uh, somewhat stiff and, and, and very procedural, uh, when a, a victim, using the Massachusetts Victim Rights Statute, and we have a very strong victim rights statute, uh, and, and D.A. Ryan has very effective victim witness advocates to implement that statute, um, when a victim, using their opportunity to speak, begins to talk to the court in language that makes me wish I could have been, that victim could have had the opportunity to use the circle process. They, they begin to express concern for the offender, interest in the offender's uh, need for treatment uh, or, or, or education, uh, a certain sympathy to the situation that the offender was in, and you, you say, oh, I wish we had the restorative process available. This would have been a good case with this victim's approach and attitude. Uh, this would have been a good case for the circle, and I think the offender would have learned a whole lot more, um, been able to speak face-to-face -face, uh, with the victim, which the victim seems to be asking for. Uh, and so, again, the improvement in the communication, the insight that can be offered, um, the ability to reflect, the ability of the victim to have questions answered, so far exceeds what happens in court today. Um, that uh, we're moving in the right direction with this legislation. Mm, thank you. Molly, may I touch? May I touch base again on one of the misconceptions and, and maybe follow up to my earlier statement? It, it also Absolutely. is for. Uh, it's not just for low-level crimes as well. Um, I personally have knowledge of um, working with uh, communities for restorative justice on some violent crimes and felonies that have been restored to restorative justice. I know of an arson case uh, which involved tens of thousands of dollars in damages, um, which was a very successful case from, from a local police department in Massachusetts. Um, and again, I also know that C4RJ has been involved uh, dealing with the Middlesex House of Corrections on a motor vehicle homicide case, which was referred several years ago. So again, that misconception, again, it's not just for low-level crime. 
Um, it, we've also had some great success with violent crimes and felonies being refer, referred to uh, the communities for restorative justice. Thank you so much for pointing that out, Chief. That's such an important point for, for people to continue to become more aware of. Um, DA Ryan, did you have any further comments? Uh, a moment ago I heard you speak up and wanted to honor that, if you still have so it, it on just, your... Just to follow up on what the Chief said as well, I mean, there are, there are ways in which the restorative justice process can obviously be used in conjunction sometimes with a sentence as well. It's not always, it doesn't always have to be either or, you know, particularly with respect to, to much more serious crimes. I mean, when I first did the restorative justice training, one of the individuals there was a woman whose son had actually been the victim of a homicide. The offender had gone off and served a substantial sentence, and then they had engaged in a restorative justice practice. So there's lots of ways for that to fit in. Um, and I think that speaks to what some folks would raise as a hurdle, which is the lack of systemic tie-in. Um, I think there's some would raise a concern that it's not formal enough, that it doesn't properly interact with what we know as the court system. And I think that's something that's very possible to integrate those two. With the passage of this bill, um, and of course the definitive action of all of us to support that passage by writing to our representatives um, and senators in this case, and, and the Ways and Means Committee, as Senator Eldridge mentioned, uh, would this also provide, am, am I hearing you correctly, that it would provide a pre-sentencing alternative? Is that, is that true? There are, there are opportunities for restorative justice to happen pre- and post-complaint. Great. So there's both. Just wanted to clarify that. Thank you so much, DA Ryan, and, and to mm -hmm. our whole panel. Um, we're going to just take a brief uh, just a moment here to thank again um, the Communities for Restorative Justice program and just mention that they have an active website and that's c4rj.com. That's c4rj.com. And also to mention the Juvenile Court Restorative Justice Diversion Program, restorativejusticediversion.org. And also there is a very strong coalition called the Restorative Justice Coalition of Massachusetts, which is a statewide coalition of concerned citizens who practice or support restorative justice in various capacities throughout the Commonwealth. So just a, a huge thank you to all of you. And uh, a reminder too, that website that I've been talking about so much that has a copy of the bill, the most recent copy, the action tool, as well as the PDF copy of the fact sheet and supporters that we've mentioned tonight. You can access that by going to bit.ly backslash townhallrj. And like I said before, we'll be doing uh, an email follow-up to support you in if you so choose to, dis to take the action and to find out more about those goodies, um, the PDF docs and everything. But again, that's bit.ly backslash townhallrj. Town 
So given that this is an interactive virtual town hall, it's time for us to open up to some live questions. And um, if you'd like to ask a live question, you can press 1 on your telephone keypad. I'd also like to thank everyone who submitted questions previous to tonight's live session. And I wanted to, to actually ask to the panel anyone who might be interested in responding to that while we have people lining up to ask a live question. Um, actually, there's so many people that are wanting to ask live questions. I'm going to go to that next. So again, thank you to those who did pre-submits. If we have time, we'll get to those. And let's start out tonight with Chris. And Chris, you can feel free to ask a question to any individual panel member or to the panel at large. Welcome, Chris. You're live. Thank you. I'm Chris. I'm with the Alternatives to Violence Project. And we're very interested in the criminal justice practice because we're in the prisons a lot. I wanted to know about restorative justice process, if there are instances where it hasn't gone well, and if there are constraints around what the outcomes of a restorative justice uh, decision might be. And of course, feel free well, to answer. If by not go well, you mean, you know, there was a agreed upon, some agreed upon plan, and that doesn't get followed through. Yes, we've had a few instances where that has occurred. But they have been a, it has been a small number of the number of cases we've had in our program. Are there any instances of, of outcomes that the public later felt were not appropriate decisions or where the consensus looking back was that the, the treatment of the criminal didn't do enough or didn't satisfy the public will? Uh, my, my understanding, I really can speak just for my town of Concord, and Chief Manjarno may have a better perspective from his town, but knowing the three police chiefs that have taken the initiative to uh, refer uh, young people directly into our C4RJ program, I'm told um, anecdotally, there has been no, uh, uh, there have been failures who have then had to be referred to court, but that there has been no uh, adverse outcome in which the police chiefs would have felt uh, either embarrassed or at some uh, risk of adverse public comment. Uh, I, I've not seen that or heard of that in, in our town over, over three different chiefs now. I think you're absolutely correct, Judge. Uh, in my experience in Bedford and, and Arlington and other community in, in Massachusetts, um, it's been extremely positive. Um, there may have been an isolated case, and, and I don't know if Jennifer's on online, but where the uh, offender didn't follow through on um, some of the, um, the contractual items. Um, but uh, again, nothing that has embarrassed the police department. Quite the contrary. Um, we've had uh, a very sensitive issue in Bedford dealing with um, some anti-Semitism. Uh, and you can imagine it was causing quite a bit of uh, community turmoil, especially among the Bedford Jewish community, rightfully so. Um, and even prior to um, identifying, uh, and the district attorney please jump in on this, even before we identified, and we still haven't identified a subject, 
We came before the community and said, we are going to hold this offender, offender accountable or offenders. Um, and one of the processes that we had early buy-in was restorative justice. And the Bedford Jewish community embraced the concept of restorative justice, knowing that they would have a seat at the table to address um, the, this, 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 this hate. Um, and, and for them, that was almost healing and soothing. And every time we went to a community forum, and the district attorney and I went to many, um, we talked about restorative justice, and we talked about the concepts. So from that perspective, um, even though we didn't identify an offender, just having restorative justice on our tool belt as an option um, eased community concerns, and that was positive. So Chris, I hope that gives you an example of how positive this was. My experience, I have had no negative effects. Again, it's a true community-based program. Um, we want members of the community uh, to participate as volunteers. Uh, we publicize it. Um, we want our community uh, to know about it, and they fully embraced it. So we have not had any negative cases that have come back on us in Bedford. I would agree with the chief that the community in Bedford was very, the, the idea of restorative justice was extremely well received, and also because I, I think the community felt that it would give them an opportunity to express their real hurt and outrage and anger about what had taken place, and perhaps in the best of circumstances, serve as an educational tool. Great. Thank you so much for the responses and for that question, Chris. Really appreciate your participation. Let's move to the next question. Welcome, Thomas. You are live. If that's me, this is Tom Porter. I teach um, restorative justice to uh, BU Law School students and, and seminarians. And I'm interested in the problem of mass incarceration and the effect it has among your colleagues on their decision as to whether to support this bill. Um, I know that uh, we had a recent talk by a Harvard Law professor who said that the conservatives, tough on law folks in the South, have become very alarmed at the cost of, of having only a default system of incarceration. And uh, she also said that, strangely enough, in Massachusetts, the numbers were increasing in terms of incarceration. But I wonder if this is a issue that is important to you in arguing for this bill is that we need other options than just sending people to be warehoused in prisons. Mm. Thank you. Anybody that is ready to field that excellent question? District Attorney well, Ryan, I, I think Go ahead, Chief Bonjour. No, I, I was actually going to, I, I thought uh, District Attorney Ryan or the judge might be perfect for that. From, from a police perspective, I think you're right. Um, I think that we were just up at the Middlesex County House of Correction the other day on a tour and they're adding beds. I'm not so sure that adding um, beds um, and increasing our prisons is the answer to, to our problems. Um, I certainly think that restorative justice needs to be um, looked at in the criminal justice community as an option. Um, you know, it's, you heard earlier tonight how it's cost effective. Um, again, building uh, prison cells um, I don't think solves that problem. 
Um, and I think it just puts a band-aid approach to it. So I think this would be a very creative option. Um, and again, it's so cost-effective. Um, if we put some resources into restorative justice, we might be solving the problem instead of putting a band-aid approach to it. Thank you, Chief. Anyone else? I'd like to add, I believe the um, well, Tom, you might know this uh, better than, than myself. The most current statistics of incarcerating one person uh, for one year, I believe, is anywhere between something like forty-five dollars to $100,000. I believe that um, also, of course, depends on the specifics of their needs if they have um, health issues and such. So we, we certainly know that it would be fantastic and it's very much in the air on a national scope to look at ways in which we can really um, measure the cost savings even more carefully, which is somewhat difficult to do given if we divert someone from being incarcerated. So um, if, if no one else would like to do a response to that great question, Tom, thank you again so much for I'll being with us tonight. Tom, Tom, okay, please do. Go ahead. Yeah, this is Judge Grassley. I think uh, when you're talking about the issue of, of mass incarceration and uh, approaching our, our overwhelming prison populations, restorative justice really has to be looked at as one of a set of multiple approaches. And mm -hmm. I mean, I'm equally enthusiastic about um, treatment courts, drug courts, veterans courts. Uh, Massachusetts even now has a homelessness court. These alternative courts that are offering resources, particularly in the urban communities, um, to avoid imprisonment and hopefully provide uh, a treatment alternative, you know, whether it's drugs or, or alcohol or, or uh, education uh, with, with court mandate and thorough follow-up. I think the package of all these programs um, are, are, are a constructive approach uh, to mass incarceration. Molly, may I follow up? I, I think the judge uh, hit it right on the head again, per usual. Uh, under District Attorney Ryan's leadership, uh, we're, I think our county is at the forefront of doing just what the judge said. Uh, we run a, a drug court out of the Concord District Court. Uh, we, have a VA, we have a VA hospital. Uh, and uh, 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 Hanscom Air Force Base, which is located um, and touches most of our communities, uh, Concord, Bedford, um, which most are part of restorative justice. So I, I think our county and our district court are at the forefront in hopefully creating a veterans court. Uh, we have a well-established drug court. And again, I think um, that's where the rubber meets the road. We're actually practicing exactly what the judge said. And restorative justice should be considered as part of that overall comprehensive plan. So what, what does restorative justice actually offer then, considering that you guys have such a great plan and it's comprehensive and there's multiple tools as a part of the approach? Um, why is this bill so important to the citizens of Massachusetts? Well, I think you know, what we know, and, and certainly Judge Crassley and the Chief and I know from long experience, is that the system works best when we have really contemplative approaches that are effective. And, and frankly, that's why I'm supportive of this practice, because it is contemplative, it holds people accountable, it allows victims and to be, feel empowered in the process 
Um, and it gives us the opportunity, you know, justice is not a cookie cutter business. It gives us the opportunity to look at a particular issue, determine if it's right for a circle, put it to a circle, and then come up with a disposition that addresses the actual needs. It's very easy to, to just move a case through the process. Um, my goal is always to change the situation for everyone involved, because that's the real way that you avoid repetition and recidivism. Mm. Great. Thank you. Uh, anybody else want to respond to that? Yeah, I don't Go think ahead. anyone could say it better than our district attorney here. Uh, she, she, she really nailed it. It's the, it's the special character of the circle process and uh, the idea that we can expand that option uh, for more and more young people, young youth offenders and young adults, um, will have an impact on crime and, and recidivism. Thank you. We have time for, I believe, one more live question before we go into our action and closing comments tonight. So I'm going to go ahead and open up the mic again to Stephen. You're live and a warm welcome. How are you doing, Molly? Uh, Very I'm, well. Uh, it's great to have you here. Right. I'm, I'm here in uh, Eugene. I'm sitting here with <clears throat> with a victim uh, who was a bank teller, and she was robbed two different times. And the second time, she kind of snapped, and now she's suffering from PTSD. Um, uh, by the way, I wanted to say that the SB 2078 is not only important to Massachusetts, but to all of us as, as leaders in this, uh, uh, what I call a, a fight for restorative justice. But anyway, um, we'll call her JM because she doesn't want her name out there. And I've spoke with her about restorative justice because I think it could help her, but she's she's so wrapped up in this PTSD that uh, it scares the hell out of her to to even think about meeting with her offender. And I was wondering if uh, perhaps someone could give her some insight as to how it could help her. Well, I think, and and there is there are certainly many situations where people would find themselves. You know, did you say your friend is there with you? Hello. Yes. 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 Oh, sorry. Right um, many people with situations who I think your friend is with you, where a person might undergo an experience where they would be rightfully very reluctant to be in close proximity to someone who had threatened them. And, and that's why this bill and our practice gives victims an opportunity to say, this isn't something I want to do. That being said, to the extent that people who participate in the process have found satisfaction from it, I think that it is sometimes, it comes <coughs> from several things, one of which Sometimes, and it's not as unclear in a bank robbery, what, what motivated this? What was the reasoning? And you might say that's pretty simple. They wanted to get money. But for, maybe there's a story behind that, that in knowing that helps to in some way make what happened 
to her, which may seem completely random, a little more understandable. Um, and, and also, it gives folks an opportunity to really express what it was like to be in this situation, for instance, at the other end of whatever the weapon was that was used during the robbery, or what it felt like. And very often in the process, they don't get an opportunity to talk about that piece of what is it that has, what was the impact for them. So I think those yeah, are things that people find helpful about this. And that's what I was trying to explain to her myself. Um, I, I know that, uh, of course, they have to be willing. And I do also know that uh, JM is terrified, not only of, of her offender, but uh, many other aspects of public life now. Right. And that's that's not an uncommon reaction, after, and not an in, certainly not an unexplainable or inappropriate reaction for somebody who's been in that frightening a situation. And it's it's something that's personal to every person. And as much as what is sometimes difficult, as much as people might want to be helpful, they really don't know how you feel. And that's something you know. I'm sure whoever she's working with on that case can make some very good referrals. The most important thing, obviously, before even getting to what's going to happen with the case or the resolution, is is her being able to regain her equilibrium and be well after what happened. Thank you, DA Ryan. Is there anyone else that would like to respond to Stephen's question and comments? Okay, I think so attorney hit a grand slam. Yeah, again, <laughs> thank you so much to our panel tonight. We're going to move into a very brief closing here. Um, it's just been an honor and a pleasure to host the three of you tonight, as well as the folks from Communities for Restorative Justice and the Juvenile Court Restorative Justice Diversion Programs, and of course all of you from Massachusetts and beyond who have been with us live tonight. Um, regarding the action, Again, if you are interested in, and we hope you will be, interested in taking action, um, it'll take you probably about two minutes or less if you go to bit.ly townhallrj, and again, I'll be sending, our team will be sending this out to you tomorrow if uh, you'd like to hear from us in this way as a follow-up. Just take that link um, from the email that will come to you and go to the action tool on this particular website. Again, that will be a tool that, that helps you to log in your zip code and find out who you can write to, and it also provides you a suggestive, uh, a suge excuse me, a suggestion for how to script. Um, I'd also just like to, again, mention the Massachusetts Coalition, um, the Restorative Justice Coalition of Massachusetts, and thank all of, all of you folks who are doing such concerted day-to-day -day work on restorative justice and moving it forward. And again, of course, to DA Marion Ryan, Chief Robert Bongiorno, and also to the Honorable John Kratzley. I know that um, you all have very busy lives, and it's just been a pleasure to hear from you tonight during this panel. And we hope that it's offered some insight to the constituents of Massachusetts, and as Stephen so uh, astutely mentioned, of course, this is about Massachusetts, but it's also about a bigger movement that is occurring in our country, and there's a lot of ground that's being gained 
in offering alternatives and a better toolkit for the process of justice than what we perhaps have had in the past. So without further ado, just thanking you all, our very honorable panel members again, and we hope to see you in the near future. This has been a very special edition of the Peace Alliances and other co-sponsors, Restorative Justice on the Rise. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and I hope to see you all as an integral part of this, this public dialogue forum in the very near future. Good night, everyone, and thank you again.